Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We are lawyers, mothers, and hosts of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live to our choices around marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. Welcome to another episode of The Nuance Life. We are so excited today to be sharing our interview with Laura Vanderkam, author of Off the Clock, also another favorite book of mine. I know how she does it. I am a massive fan of Laura. It's going to definitely come through in the interview. That's fine. I'm cool with that. Um, But we can't wait to share her thoughts on time and memory and how we process time and how to do it in ways that make us all feel less busy. So look forward to that in the main segment of the show. As always, we'll kick off the beginning of the show with commemorations. The first commemoration comes from friend of our podcast, Debbie. Debbie writes, Hi, Sarah and Beth. I'm writing today to celebrate the first birthday of my youngest, Layton. Unlike with my oldest, in which his birth and birthday is only full of positive memories, Layton has paved a different path. Layton entered the world unexpectedly, eight weeks early. After a very quick labor, he was rushed out of the room, and we were told in a heartless way that he likely had Down syndrome. Unlike a typical birth experience in which everyone acts like the sky is the limit for the baby's lifetime potential, that is far from the average experience when you are told your child has Down syndrome. It is crazy how a very negative experience within the first 24 hours are forever with you and can overtake what should have been a joyous memory. With my oldest, the first birthday marked the transition from infancy into toddlerhood, but with Layton, we are still deeply in infancy. His birthday will likely always be bittersweet for me, but I want to commemorate everything we have learned in the past year and all of the positive experiences. Aside from a handful of arrogant doctors, our experience has been pretty darn exceptional. Our daycare immediately reassured me that they had zero concerns in providing an inclusive environment and have worked tirelessly to support his rigorous therapy expectations throughout the day. My professional network quickly responded and have accommodated my need for a flexible schedule, introduced me to experts within their network, and invited me to the table to make changes to help other parents. Childhood friends who saw the announcement on Facebook immediately reached out to support us and share experiences experiences about navigating their own child's special needs. I have learned so many new things about Down syndrome and early childhood development, and most of the early concerns have melted away. And most importantly, his big brother adores him, and their relationship is in no way different than I dreamt the moment I knew I was having another boy. Layton has met every therapy goal set for him in the past year and melts everyone's heart with his giant grin, huge laugh, and uncanny ability to maneuver his way across the room to a toy by rolling or scooting backward. In some ways, our life is forever changed, and in many other ways, our life is no different than I would have guessed a year ago. Thank you always for your thoughts and love, Debbie. Oh, I love Debbie so much. 
I think that's such an important moment, just part of commemorating generally, is making space for both things, for how it's different, how it's the same, how it's sad, how it's happy. Like, that's what I think is so important about our commemorations and making space for all these different moments in life and just allowing them to be both things. Debbie has become a good friend to me since we started Pantsy Politics, and I just love seeing pictures of Leighton on Facebook and Instagram, and Debbie has started a blog where she's sharing information about Down syndrome and other special needs, and I just think that her, this family has um, navigated this experience in a way that is intended to help other people go through the same thing successfully, and it's it's really wonderful. We also got a commemoration from Jamie. She says, I'm writing today to share a personal commemoration with you because you've both inspired me to take this step. This week I had my first ever therapy session. Woohoo! I'm 30 years old and have likely needed therapy for, I don't know, my whole life. My first session was wonderful. I was finally able to unpack family drama I've been holding on for years, my mom's death, my relationship with my Trump-loving dad, and so much more. I'll be going weekly for a while, and I'm so excited to share this with everyone to help break down the mental health stigma. You two helped me do this along with some friends and coworkers, and I would love to do the same for someone else too. Of all the huge moments in my life lately, buying a first home, a big career high, etc., this one was the one that I chose to share with y'all because it just felt right. Thank you so much for inspiring me to take this step. Good job, Jamie. Thank you for taking that step. Mm-hmm. And I want to share, that makes me think of a tweet that I saw from our friend Brandon Harvey. He wrote online that people casually mentioning that they go to therapy was what it took for me to feel comfortable going to therapy. And Mm -hmm. guess what? It's the most normal thing. And so, okay, break the stigma. Yay, therapy. And I think that's so true. Like, the more you can just work into conversations. I was talking to my therapist about this. Mm -hmm. The more you give other people permission to take that step. I do that all the time because I'm totally obsessed with my new therapist, Beth. And her name is Beth. Let's talk about that for a minute. (laughs) And I say it all the time. I'm like, I love therapy. I love my therapy. And you can see some people are kind of like, oh my God, I can't believe she said that. I'm like, believe it. I'm going to say it some more because I love therapy and I love my new therapist and everybody's going to hear about it. I do that too. I try to tweet about it occasionally too. Like I just tweeted about this interesting conversation I had with my therapist where he called me a warm warrior. Oh, I like that. (laughs) Yeah. He said, because I was telling him about how I really struggle to focus on basic household things sometimes. And it's very frustrating for me. And he laughed and said, you know, it's so funny because you sort of present like the cover of Good Housekeeping. Do you know this about yourself that you present like the cover of Good Housekeeping? And I said, I I guess I do know that about myself. And I said, but that's that's not me at all. And he was like, no, it's not you. At all. So, um, so anyway, it was really a, a funny conversation. But I try to just share that stuff when it comes up, because I think the more we talk about it, the more people like Jamie will take this step and hopefully mm-hmm. find it to be as helpful as we've both found it. Amen. We also got a note anonymously and wanted to share it. I'm a law school graduate, and I'm going to my first trial, federal at that, this week. It's a big deal, and I'd like to commemorate it for an unexpected reason. I haven't passed the bar exam yet, despite taking it three times. During that time, I've worked at the same law firm, and they've never given up on me. I'm so grateful for that. Because of my background in my first career, I'm really good at keeping things organized and running smoothly at the firm, in addition to being able to really help with legal work. We're a small shop. It would have been an easy and reasonable decision to have me stay at the office so that when the partners came back, I'd have had an entire quiet week to get things teed up for their return. But they made the decision to take me with them so I can experience a trial rather than just the run-up to it, help them, and most importantly, offer my opinion. 
We have other people who can handle the office, but haven't been with the firm as long as I have. They are taking me because they believe I'll pass the bar exam, be an attorney, and I'm totally capable of going to trial and handling it well. So more than sitting in on my first trial, I'd like to commemorate the grace, belief, and trust I've been so fortunate to have been given. Getting failing bar results back three times has been an incredible blow to my ego, and these guys who are brilliant are also why I keep having faith in myself. I think this is so beautiful, especially having come from this world. Mm -hmm. Everything about this to me touches my heart and I'm so happy for this person. And I hope this inspires lots of other people. The bar exam is it is bullshit. An obstacle. It's bullshit gatekeeping. It's just an obstacle. That's right. And you just That's have the first to get thing. through that obstacle. And so don't give up on yourself if you've had this experience too, because you can be an outstanding lawyer and struggle with that particular obstacle. Fun fact, it took two times for me to pass the bar exam. There are two parts of the bar exam. There's a multiple choice portion and a written exam, which is uh, <clears throat> subjective. Yep, that's the part I did not pass the first attempt. Luckily, in Kentucky, you can just retake the part that you did not pass. So I retook that part. I, pa I passed it. Or I I, I missed a regrade, which almost everybody passes by like point one point. It's really, it's really super obnoxious. I was also breastfeeding a three-month-old baby when I took the bar exam, which was a super fun experience. And then later, some girl sued the Kentucky bar exam for not giving her a breastfeeding break. And I was like, why did I not think of that? I just assumed that, like, this was the reality. I had to sit there with, like, rock-hard boobs because they were so full of milk at that point. But, yeah, I didn't pass. I passed the second time. It was a blow to my ego, but also a very positive learning experience and so keep at it anonymous. You'll make it. It's so it doesn't have anything to do with what kind of lawyer you are. And I'm so glad your firm can see that. That's right. We want to mention before we talk with Laura Vanderkam that we've gotten many pieces of listener feedback about our 9-11 series, the discussion we had about it on The Nuanced Life, as well as the series on pantsy politics. It doesn't feel right to us to share all of those stories because they are very personal, but I want you to know that we're reading them. They mean a lot to us. They certainly have informed our experience, especially as we hear from people who were born on September 11th and have to struggle with putting their birthday together with this horrible moment in American history. We're just sitting with all of that and holding space for it in and of ourselves and just want to thank all of you for sharing those stories with us. We just returned from our trip to New York City to the 9-11 Museum and Memorial. If you're not a regular listener to Pantsuit Politics, we shared our reflections on that visit on yesterday's show on the actual anniversary of September 11th. So go on over to Pantsuit Politics and check that out if you're not a regular listener. Next up, we're sharing our interview with Laura Vanderkam. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, you tell me what you feel like is the big the big picture of the book so I can stop gushing about it. And since you actually wrote it, you can share with our listeners what, what your sort of purpose was in writing Off the Clock. Well, my purpose is to figure out 
how people who have a lot going on in their lives can still feel relaxed about their time. Um, you know, there's, there's many people who have a lot going on who seem to be running around like chickens with their head cut off. And, and that's one approach. Um, but how much better if we could have a lot going on and yet still feel calm about it, still feel like we do have time for the things that we want to do. Um, so for off the clock, I, recruited over 900 people who both had full-time jobs and families because those are the two categories of people that uh, tend to say they have the least amount of time. And roll their eyes at productivity advice. And roll their eyes at productivity (laughs) I had them I had them track their time for a day, which was a normal March Monday, and then I had them answer various questions about how they felt about their time um, on a seven-point scale so I could come up with scores for everybody. Uh, and then I could compare the people who were in the top of these time perception scores, that is the people who felt like they had the most time, who felt like time was abundant, felt relaxed about their time, uh, compare their lives with the people who felt starve for time, stress for time, you know, those who are on the bottom of the time perception scale. And, you know, looking at these time logs, uh, some of the things you might think would be the obvious differences just weren't. I mean, there weren't really huge differences in how much people were working or sleeping. Um, Almost everyone with a full-time job works somewhere between seven and nine hours on a, a, you know, normal March Monday. Uh, So that wasn't necessarily the the big issue. Um, People were sleeping within a pretty tight range too, which is also not terribly surprising. I mean, most people sleep somewhere between, you know, six and a half and eight and a half hours per day. Um, But how people spent the time that they had sort of discretionary control over had a lot of effect on how they perceive time. Um, you know, the people who felt like they had a lot of time were more likely to use that time for things like reading, for having little adventures in their lives, for spending time with friends. Um, whereas the people who felt like they had the least amount of time were more likely to spend their discretionary time either, you know, watching television or on social media. So, you know, we all have the same amount of time. It's really what we choose to do with it. I think that's what's so brilliant about the way you sort of frame this. Well, and about time tracking, you are a big fan of time tracker. You go into that a lot in the book. And I am now officially a time tracker. I use this really cool app that I'll share with our listeners called Lifecycle. Have you ever heard of this app? I have not. Tell me about it because it's, I'm always looking for one. I'm sh- that's what I, I figured that you were the time tracker guru. So it's it kind of does it for you. It uses your phone. And so... Like as you're going through the day and you change locations, even around your own house, like it will, it divides up the time for you. And then you go in and label it to make sure it's, it's properly classifying them. Okay. And so it's really cool. I really like, and like it, it, it chunks up all your driving time. This is what I learned first from tracking my time. I drive way more than I was telling myself. Like I was like, I'm in the car like 15 minutes a day. Uh, no, I'm in the car for like an hour a day. Um, at least if not more. And so you can go in and you can say like, oh, well, I was watching TV and you can, and you can categorize it. And then what's really cool is like, it it tell it does exactly what you try to get your readers to do, which is like over a week, it will show you, well, this is how much time you're spending with family. This is how much time you're working. This is how much time you were spending with friends. And then it'll even do it at the month level. And it'll show like you went to new locations and you spent more time sleeping or you spent more time working. Like it kind of does the data really cool. And I think that is such a powerful exercise, just like you recommend in the book. And I think, tell me how you feel about this. I think so often we think about time, like we're just on this treadmill and there's just nothing we can do about it. It's like clicking by, clicking by, clicking by. 
And you're, I think what you're saying is, hey, you know, like we, we take in the input of time, like we take the input of everything, which is through a framework and we're telling ourselves stories. We want to believe that time is this objective reality, but really the stories you tell yourself about your time and how you're spending it really affects how the perception of your time and the story about you're telling yourself about how busy you are, how relaxed you are or whatever. And I think that that is it's such a trick of the human brain that we tell ourselves like this is a concrete reality, but really that's not true. We're using all sorts of input filters about time and memory and relaxation to put together the story we tell ourselves about being busy or not. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, life is all about the stories we tell ourselves. Mm-hmm. And and many of us are walking around with a story that, oh, I'm so busy. I'm crazed. I have no time for anything. Um, and what the funny thing about that is then your brain refuses to see counter evidence of, mm-hmm. from that story. So if you're walking around that with that story and yet you are on Instagram for like two hours, your brain doesn't even register it because I'm so busy. I have no time for anything, it, you know, except for the two hours I just <laughs> on Instagram. Or, you know, people will be like, I have no free time whatsoever. And you're looking at a time log and it's got whatever time. I mean, it's slightly harder for people to say that they have no time. But what they'll often tell me is, oh, well, that wasn't a typical week. Or this never happens, even though clearly it did happen. Um, It's just in our story of our lives, that doesn't fit in. So we then have to, instead of changing the story, we have to, you know, figure out how to wish it away as if it weren't mm-hmm. there. I was like, Oh, I was only on Instagram for two hours because I'm so stressed about work. I mean, it's hard to see what sort of work problem wouldn't have been solved with like the extra <laughs> two hours you could have devoted to it or to relaxing in a real way. Right. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I think it really uh, time tracking makes sure we're working from good data. Mm-hmm. Um, like with any decision, you know, with a public policy decision, with a business decision, like if you don't have good data, like your change to it is, is going to be highly suspect. Uh, as, as you said, like you didn't know how much time you're spending in the car. Um, so, you know, if you were thinking about how I could change my life to get more time for X, Y, or Z, y- you wouldn't have been looking at the category of time in the car because in your mind mm-hmm. it doesn't exist. And I had the same issue. I thought I wasn't spending any time in the car either because I normally work out of a home office. So I don't have a mm-hmm. And, you know, for most people, the the daily commute is a big chunk of their time in the car. And so therefore that's, you know, since I didn't have that in my mind, this is like not even a category of time. I tracked my time. I realized I was in the car for more than an hour a day on average, um, which is a lot of time. (laughs) So I have a choice that I can say, well, you know, could I come up with a way to do something with that time? Can I figure out ways to uh, minimize that time? Or at least I need to have that in my mental model of life. Um, and and so, yeah, you know, this this is the, the upside of time tracking. I come from the background of being a practicing lawyer and tracking time for the purpose of billing it. And I was interested in your discussion of this topic because time tracking in that context can create this frenzy about your time. I feel like you're saying track your time so that you see how much you have and you can make good decisions about it. And my background in time tracking is track your time and more time and more and more and more. And there's never enough because this is the Mm -hmm. measure of your success. And with some distance from that lifestyle, now I see that what was really missing for me is that I never understood that there are moments of investment in time. 
-hmm. right? I looked at time as this finite thing that I was trying to withdraw as much as possible. And something that I really love about your approach is the emphasis on invest in people because people will make you feel like you have more time and invest in things that give you energy. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I find the billable hours phenomenon fascinating um, because it does have a, a quite a psychological effect on the people who have to do it. Uh, many of the people who I am trying to encourage to keep a time log for all their time uh, just can't even do it if they've been billing their time for enough years. It's like there, there's this uh, the idea that they would log their time outside of work is is just so. Uh, I don't know. I'm gonna say like repulsive or something. Yeah, they have PTSD. Mind for yeah, me. they have PTSD, man. It's like a woman yeah. who's been on a breast pump, and you talk about a breast pump, and they're just revolt. You know, they're like, yeah. oh my god, no. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's it's something like that. That um, and, and even if it'd be like it's only for a week, it's only to get a good sense of your time. It's like they just can't do it. Um, so I find that fascinating. I also find the sort of um, sadness about time in a lot of people in billable hours sort of odd too, given that. Um, I mean, clearly you can't bill all your time at work, but let's say your firm has a requirement of like 2000 hours a year. That's like 40 hours a week. Um, to get 40 hours, you might need to work 50. Um, you know, if you've got a good system going, but still, you know, 50 hours a week, is not an infinite amount of time. I mean, there's 168 hours in a week. Like, you know, you work 50, you sleep eight hours a night, you still got 62 hours for other things. And yet it's, it has this sort of zero, I, I don't know how to describe it, but it's like, yes, every time you don't work, you feel like you're losing on this debt of 2000 hours you have to get to or something, uh, which it's, it's just a, a fascinating mindset from, from that perspective, because to me, time tracking is not like that at all. I mean, for starters, I'm not trying to hit a billable hour target. I mean, I probably do come close to what, you know, a lawyer would need to hit, but you know, I'm doing it solely because I want to, I'm not having to assign everything to a certain category. Um, but because that, it, it feels very different for me, I guess I, I have, um, you know, more autonomy over it perhaps, or somebody was asking me about my time tracking the other day and they're like, well, so on weekends and holidays, do you just put an X through the log? And I'm like, I don't understand even that question. Like uh, the idea that I wouldn't track on weekends or holidays as if this time doesn't exist. Um, mm -hmm. or as if tracking is such this restrictive thing on my life that I, I can't deal with it on, on weekends or holidays. It's like, well, it's like brushing my teeth. I don't sit there saying like, oh, I never brush my teeth on weekends. That would just be so horrible and terrible, <laughs> you know? So I, I, I guess it's, I mean, just to get it back to your question, I, I feel like, yeah, I, thinking of time as an investment is a good way to think about it because certain things we do now free up time in the future. And even if you are billing time, um, it might be that having a really good conversation with a client um, where you're really listening, you're really solving their problem um, means that they'll come to you immediately the next time. Like they're not even thinking of calling another lawyer, uh, which is very much more efficient than if you have to go pursue business uh, in terms of your, your billable hours, for instance. So, you know, uh, definitely there are ways to invest time to free up more time in the future. You know what I think is so important about what you just said for lawyers, and, and I see this now with distance. I think the billable hour makes you forget that you're choosing to spend this time still. And when mm. you said, you know, I want to do this, I think something about the billable hour makes you lose all sense of I'm still a human being in control of my life, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and that seems to be a theme of your work, too, that like understanding that this is all about your priorities drives how much you're able to get out of those hours that you have in a week. 
Yeah, no, I, I definitely think that the autonomy part is is key. I mean, it's one of the reasons that people who I've, I've done stories on, on, you know, self-employment in the past. And even, even people who wind up self-employed, not entirely out of choice, it's because of, of job loss and then they need to do something to generate income, uh, tend to wind up very happy with it uh, within a certain period of time, just because of that sense of autonomy, um, that even if you are, you know, needing to pursue a lot of work, you feel like you're on a bit of a treadmill, having control over which work you pursue um, it's just such a part of human happiness, um, that sense of control of your time and autonomy, that it doesn't necessarily matter that you didn't intend to do it in the first place. So, Laura, I have to ask, as I was reading your book, this podcast series was going on. Too. Have you ever listened to Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History? I, I have not, but uh, tell me about it. Well, why you? I'm reading your beautiful, especially the sections on memory. He did a series this season on memory. And how he had a really funny episode called Free Brian Williams. And he said, basically, like, memory, we think memory, we talk about memory as if it's like this card catalog and you just pull out the card and from the little filing station and it is perfectly accurate. And if you do not report on it accurately, you are lying. And for some nefarious reason. And he's like, that's not how memory works at all. Memory is cultivated. Memory are stories we tell ourselves as much as it is the experience in the moment. And so I'm like listening to this podcast and I'm, and I'm reading your book and you're talking about memory. And oh my gosh, especially with in regards to how we feel about time with our children. Um, look, I'm tearing up right now. That beautiful story from the woman like I, t- I teach, I take every experience with my children as sort of like a gem and I polish the gem and I take the memory out and I look at it instead of feeling sad that my children are grown. I think, Oh my God, remember that beautiful day when they were print. Look at me. I'm crying right now. Um, playing in the lawn. Like I just thought that was such, so when I was listening to these back to back, I'm like, Oh my God, I get this. This is clicking for me. Like memory is a tool and it's a story we tell too. And so if you can polish those memories and really take care of them and focus on them as an aspect of how you experience your time in the past, it can really change the way you experience time in the future. But I I think we really have to rethink how we think about memory too. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, obviously the Brian Williams thing is its own special case in that he (laughs) had a vested interest in seeing himself as this, you know, crusader that uh, may not have actually happened. Um, And, and, you know, clearly uh, that story came from somewhere and how he wished to to see himself. And the more he told it, I'm sure he's a very good storyteller. um, Uh it, It became more embellished, which, which is fine when it's your crazy uncle telling stories around the Thanksgiving table. Most people expect their journalists to behave a little bit differently. No, true. And he makes that point. He makes yes. that point. So, so that's that's where where what's going on with that one. But uh, it's true for many of us. Like our memories are not just set, and it's exactly how it happened. I mean, if you think about, like, if you ask two spouses to tell the story of their wedding. I mean, they were clearly both there and it happened, um, but they're going to remember the day in very different ways. It's certain different details they remember, um, different ways, things they've heard, stories from other people who are there become sort of the narrative highlight. I mean, we're all storytellers in this regard. Mm-hmm. Um, memory is important for time in that memory helps determine how much time we feel has passed. Like it's all about our time perception. So, um, when we're looking at any given unit of time, how big we perceive it as has to do with how many memories we have of that given unit of time. Um, so if you think about going on vacation, if you're going somewhere you've never been before, the first day often seems very long. 
And that's because, you know, your brain is making all these new memories. It, it doesn't know what it's going to need in the future. And so it's remembering all of it. And because it's remembering all of it, it the day feels very long. Um, whereas if you think about like going to work on your average Tuesday, uh, you're getting there the same way you did every Tuesday before you're walking down the same hall. Like people have no memory basically of the time they got up, uh, got dressed and then showed up at their desk. Like, you know, it's as if it didn't even exist. Um, because your brain doesn't care. Like it's walked down that hallway at work, you know, a thousand times. It, It doesn't need to remember that hallway this particular morning. The issue is that too many, too much of that sameness added up means that whole years start like disappearing into these memory sinkholes because there's nothing memorable about them. And so people who have a very good uh, command of time are conscious about creating memories, um, like actually doing things that are out of the ordinary with their time. um, So that time does become memorable. And then they're good about kind of curating those memories afterwards, like having discussions with people like, oh, that happened or setting aside time to look at old photos or um, talk with people who were there at certain times of their lives. Uh, and by doing this, you, you can expand the experience of the past. And that makes you feel like you had this richer, fuller life um, and, and makes you feel like you have more time. I think what really clicked for me in that when you're talking about cultivating the memories, too, is and putting it together with what he's talking about about, which is we tell ourselves the stories about these memories, even thinking like he talks about flashbulb studies and even in these big events. And we think we remember September 11th exactly who we were with. And then you go back five years later and people tell the story a little differently and they'll swear that they were right, that the first time was wrong, even if they like wrote it in their own handwriting the moment after the day after September 11th. It's really fascinating. And I think like when you talk about cultivating it, it's the story you tell yourself about that memory for me, like in relationship to time, right? So like if I was always telling myself the kid, you know, my kid's childhood is passing so quickly. I just can't grasp it. It's passing so fast. It's going so quickly. And it makes me so sad because it's like this almost scarcity mindset when I think back on the time spent with my children or I'm being hard on myself and I'm saying, well, instead of focusing on cultivating the memory of the really great connection we had today, I'm focusing on, oh, well, this is when I yelled when I shouldn't have, or this is when I, you know, was on my phone when I shouldn't have. And it's like, I feel like, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm being like this objective perceiver of how I spent my time in these memories that were made. But really that's a story like linked into my perception of the memories and the time it's too. And so I'm really trying to be cognizant of not just looking back on those times, but really, like you said, cultivating them in a richer way. Like, no, I'm enjoying these moments with my kids and cultivating them that way will, instead of telling myself like they're this thing that I'm grasping that I can't get a hold of, I let, that's why I thought treasure chest was such a beautiful thing. No, I'm every day is this beautiful gem that I'm, I'm and my treasure chest is going, getting bigger and bigger and bigger with every passing year with them and focusing on sort of the more positive aspects of those memories instead of beating myself up for not being a good mom and thinking particularly about those experiences with my time. That's good. I mean, because it turns out that beating ourselves up about things that are in the past is is one of the most useless ways to spend time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I mean, unless you are using that to actively make a change in something now that needs to be changed, which is often not the case anyway, um, then, then yeah, that's, that's pretty much a total waste of time. Well, how do you distinguish though? How do you make sure you're doing something like, how do you look at your, how you're spending your time and think, okay, this is because I'm trying to improve it. And these are some areas that I think I could make some changes. 
versus beating yourself up. Man, that's a fine line. How do you figure that out? Well, because what's coming out of it, um, if you have this feeling and then you're like, oh, and here's a practical thing I could do and let me try that tomorrow. I think you know, mm. that's, that's useful. Um, if you're going from like, oh, I did this thing and oh, I'm a terrible person, which is not helpful at all because there's nothing, I mean, to be, if, if you have the story that you're a terrible person, well, what are you going to do about that? Um, right. You're really just a terrible person and you know, <laughs> that's not going to, you know, nothing uh, can what are you going to do? do? Uh, so, um, you know, I think, I think that's, it's, it's this difference between, you know, people feel a lot of guilt about things that are, are usually not a great source of, of guilt. Guilt means that somebody was actually hurt because of something you did. And so that you are then, you know, going to actively make amends to make it better. So there are certainly circumstances where that's the case. For instance, if you've been late to something and somebody, you know, had to sit there for 20 minutes waiting for you, that's certainly something you could then say, you know, I'm really sorry that happened. Um, I, I recognize what happened is that I had scheduled things too close together and then I thought I could get here quicker than I did, which is why I didn't call you to alert you. I'm really sorry that I wasted your time. Uh, you know, and ask for, for the person's forgiveness for that. Um, you know, that's a useful thing for guilt, you know, but the problem when guilt is just sort of this larger existential thing of like, Oh, I'm not a good enough parent. I'm not a good enough employee. I'm not a good, I don't know who nobody is. Right. Like, so Mm -hmm. that doesn't suggest any obvious solutions that would actually make the situation better. Um, so yeah, then, then that's not a good source and not a good reason for, for guilt. Mm-hmm. Beth is much better at that than I am. Yeah, I don't do a lot of guilt. I don't find <laughs> it very helpful. But what I was thinking about as you were having this conversation, especially as I am working with clients in my coaching practice, I often say to people, let's talk about what you're really willing to change. Because mm. so many of us have problems and stresses in life that we absolutely could change if we wanted to, but we're just, we're not willing to do that. And I'm wondering in all of the studies that you've done and people you've worked with, where you see people willing to make changes to use their time more effectively and where you see people get stuck in things that they could change, but they just won't. Yeah. I mean, when people are completely unwilling to change things, it's often because they're oper- they have some story that they are telling themselves <laughs> as the revealed truth um, that they, you know, has often been passed down to them <laughs> through the ages uh, from parents or, or, you know, friends, where they, you know, that everybody thinks this way. Uh, and, and because they have this story, it is very hard to do things differently. So, you know, like people will complain and complain about making children's lunches. Like, well, you know, there's this fun program called school lunch where you send the kid with money loaded on their, their account. All they have to do is like type in the numbers and it's great. Like, so maybe once every three months you put a couple hundred bucks on there and you're good. You never have to make a lunch again. And people will look at you like you're suggesting torturing your children. Um, <laughs> and it's like, but you can't do that. Like, well, actually you can. And millions of people do. And it's like, well, you know, th- they have this story, like a good parent would never do that. It's like, well, actually I could show you all kinds of parents who are amazing who do that, but they've gotten this story somewhere, uh, that you just can't do that. That's not what a good parent would do. If you know, it's a tantamount to child abuse or something, or having your children take the bus instead of, uh, you know, getting a ride to school or some such, or, uh, you know, there, there's various different, you know, people do this at work too. I mean, I don't just mean to pick on people's sort of parenting stories of that. You know, people be like, 
I, I have to be at my desk when my boss walks in. That is a very common story, right? Or, you know, I can't leave until she leaves. Uh, if you want to keep your job, you, you cannot leave before your boss leaves. Everyone knows that. Uh, it, it, you know, anytime you're telling yourself a story that says everyone knows that or, you know, probably we're, we're, you know, have one of these deep narratives that then make people very, very resistant to doing things differently, even if they are complaining about the way it is. Um, you know, and, and those, those are hard to let go of. Um, but you know, sometimes people say, well, you know, you could try telling yourself a different story or you could see if other people who are in similar situations to you have that same story and, and what's, or if they don't, you know, what are they doing differently and has it destroyed their life? And often the answer is no. (laughs) So, uh, you know, maybe you could try telling yourself this different story for a little while and just see what happens. I mean, you know, maybe once and then, Oh wait, the earth didn't fall apart when my kid, you know, bought the chicken sandwich at lunch. Hmm, interesting. What <laughs> you can do from that. Well, I think it's I had a health coach tell me one time that the hardest level of change is at the identity level, and mm-hmm. I think stories we tell ourselves about our time are so identity driven. Like I'm a busy person or I'm a person who works so hard I couldn't possibly have time to do this. Like or I'm a parent that I'm the kind of parent that does this or I'm the kind of parent that just puts it all on the altar of parenting. And so I couldn't possibly have time for this or that because that might mean I'm a bad mom. I mean, I think that those stories are so like, it's not like I feel busy. It is I am busy, you know? Yeah. Or, or it's just, you know, when we become convinced we're right, it's amazing how hard we will cling to a story. So and one of my favorite examples of this is, um, and I'm sure some of your listeners are going to write in mad about this because they're going to disagree <laughs> with me. But uh dishwashing. Okay. When you put your stuff in the dishwasher, some people insist they need to scrub everything off, all the food off first before they put their you know, dishes in the dishwasher. False. Not true. False. Not true. Because it turns out a lot. And in fact, a lot of modern detergents are formulated such as the enzymes need proteins to be catalyzed. Mm-hmm. Okay. So your detergent doesn't work if you scrub your dishes before you put them in. In fact, scrubbing your dishes is the worst way to do it. It means your food is, your plates aren't getting as clean. You tell this to people and they get so mad. They they feel like the dishwasher detergent people just shouldn't have formulated their their detergent that way because it's rewarding laziness or something. (laughs) And I I just find this hilarious, uh, you know, how much people cling to the story of what is the right way to wash dishes of all things. Uh, so, so yeah, the, these identity stories can be pretty deep, even for things that are really not that important. It's all the stuff of life, right? So lessons, don't scrub your dishes first, put your kids on the bus, have them buy lunch at school. I think these are really good practical takeaways. <laughs> I think it's a yeah. spiritual exercise, by the way, to put your kids on the school bus and that we should all do that. Just a big plug, America. I'm a big fan of the bus. Bus is good. Uh, you know, if there's a specific reason, it's not like, I mean, if your kid is obviously getting bullied on the bus and you can't work out a solution, um, sure. I mean, but, you know, for most people, uh, most of these situations are going to be fine. I think, too, one of the, my favorite parts of the book going on this, you know, how the identity driven how we spend our time and particularly I love your point of people are such a good investment and why people resist um, 
making changes that really invest in people or even some of the, I think some of these identity driven stories we're just telling ourselves is there is this inherent vulnerability in making those choices that I think you talk about beautifully that like when you invest in people, sometimes it won't work out. Sometimes the relationships will end, you know, loving, um, your life and investing in the people around you, um, means that sometimes that will involve loss. There's a bittersweet aspect to that. And that's really hard. I think that's, 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 why I think this there's such good spiritual work in your book here because that to face that head on and say I'm going to make the investment because you can you, you can do you can use your time in different ways that are not as rewarding but also not as risky like spending two hours on Instagram um, yeah so how do you convince people like hey man it's worth it like I know there's a there's some vulnerability and there's some risk here but it's worth it yeah, well, let's say sometimes it just comes down to a mantra like this, like people are a good use of time. And if you keep mm-hmm. telling yourself that, I, you know, one of the things is that the happiness that you gain from a relationship, it, it doesn't necessarily depend on what the state of the relationship is now. So even if like, mm-hmm. you know, somebody is like estranged from their adult children, well, you still had happy moments together, maybe when they were growing up and you can still think about those. And the happiness is still there, even if the relationship took a change later on in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if also you view it from the perspective, like uh, yeah, relationships can end, they will all end. I mean, mm-hmm. that is the reality. I mean, none of us is going to live forever. Um, and, and so it's gonna, in this world, all of them end one way or the other, the, the, it's the inevitability of loss. And so we've got to tell ourselves that, yes, it's going to end, but wisdom is really about loving anyway, knowing that that will happen because the happiness is still there in the moment, even if it will not be at some point in, in the future. And there, there's practical ways to make people a priority in your life. Um, you know, some people have a ton of people in their lives for various reasons. And uh, for, for them, it's more about sort of sifting through and making sure that they're investing in the relationships that are the most sort of energizing and, and all that. And, um, which can be hard when there's other people who are sort of like immediately there, uh, that you wind up having to deal with for other people. It's about more actively trying to reach out and and cultivate relationships if there aren't quite as many people in, in your life. But I suggest like when people, you know, do whatever planning exercise they do that they build relationships as a category into it. So I plan my weeks on Friday afternoons, Um, I make my career priorities for the upcoming week, but I also make relationship priorities and and self priorities. And, uh, you know, career is pretty self-explanatory, but, and and self to a degree is too, I mean, it'd be something like going for a bike ride, getting a massage or, you know, whatever, but the relationship priorities are sometimes a little bit more difficult to sort out. Um, but it could be things like, you know, taking one child for a special time together, you know, maybe there's a day that one kid has off school and the others don't, or has off camp. Um, or, you know, you try to do, uh, something, or it could be as a family, you're doing a special activity or something with your spouse, something with a friend. Um, you know, they haven't seen a friend in a while and you look at the week and say, oh, well, what's going to be my relationship priority for a week? Well, I haven't seen this friend in a while. Let me reach out to her and try to get at least a time to get together. We can just talk on the phone, but doing something, um, to invest in relationships and elevating that as a priority is, is a good way to have this take more of your time. I think that's awesome. If you were to leave people with one framework for thinking about better using their time, like what is the the main thing you would say to someone who just wants to get started? Well, I think cultivating this sense of intentionality is is really the the biggest switch. Time keeps passing 
whether we think about how we want to spend it or not. And that makes it very, very difficult to use well. Um, it's as if the money that came into your life automatically went out every month, like every single dollar of it without, you know, even if you did nothing with it. It's very hard in that situation to stop and really actively decide where to allocate things. Um, but, you know, we can, we can pause and reflect. And so building some sort of time into your life to pause and reflect. I track my time, obviously. I would love if everyone would do that. I know a lot of people will not. Um, but just at the end of the day, you can sort of look back and say, well, what did I like about my day? Like, what really worked? Like, let me think about that. Because uh, I could celebrate whatever's working. Like, yay, let's, let's be happy about that. Uh, what would I like to spend more time doing? Um, so of all the things you did that day, what would be great if you could maybe add an extra half hour to it? And of all the things you did in the day, what would you really like to spend less time doing? Uh, and is there a feasible way to do that? Uh, and then, you know, figure out what changes you can make. And if you do that most days or, you know, most weeks, look back on your time and, and ask these questions, you can sort of back into better choices just, just by doing that. Uh, I have two questions. First, since you've written a book, have you learned like any tips or things from readers or feedback from people that you're like, oh, dang, that's really good. I wish I put that in the book. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's it's interesting to me what people have most seized on. And I've gotten a lot of emails from people who I, I talk about this, this mantra of plan it in, do it anyway, which is that we try to make memories in our life. We might have planned interesting things to do. And then we get to the moment where we're supposed to do it. And we're like, oh, but I'm tired. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and what it, that is, is sort of our experiencing self kicking in, being like, oh, it would be so much easier to just sit here and watch TV. You don't have to go to the art museum. Oh, the kids are happy. You don't have to take them to that you know, playground you guys were going to explore or go on that bike ride. Yeah, you have to load all the bikes in the car. That's going to take time. You could just sit. They're happy. Don't yeah. do anything. Um which is, is not the best voice to be listening to because that is the voice that keeps you from having memories. That's mm -hmm. the voice that has time disappear into nothingness because you're puttering around the house watching TV all day is not going to be anything your brain will remember in the future. Um, so you have to consider what your remembering self would like to look back upon um, when you are convincing you are experiencing self to go do it. So a lot of people have written me that that was actually very important for them that, um, they'll write me like, I thought I wasn't going to do X. And then I remembered what you said, plan it and do it anyway. And so I did take my kids to this park and we had an amazing time and I have all these great photos and I've been looking back on them and I have a, such a special memory of, you know, seeing the sun off their hair on that slide. And I'm so glad we did it. Um, and, and those phrases, I'm so glad we did it. It's, it's just mm. so important because yeah, you know, it's, we, we're always tired, but we draw energy from meaningful things. That's so true. And then my next question is, what are you working on next? I'm so excited. <laughs> well, I actually, I know what my next book is. It's coming out in March of 2019 and it is a fable. It's called, Juli yeah, it's called Juliet's School of Possibilities, a little story about the power of priorities. Uh, and you know, the, the genre of like business fables, uh, if you think about things like the one minute manager or five dysfunctions of a team, almost all of them have been written by men. And so my publisher came to me and said, well, we'd, we'd like to diversify that a little bit. Would you be interested in trying to do one? And I said, well, sure, I'll give it a stab. Uh, so I wrote a novella called Juliet's School of Possibilities, which is uh, about someone, who, a, a young lady who's, you know, a consultant whose life is falling apart on all dimensions, who 
finds this, you know, mentor figure in, in Juliet who's running a retreat on the New Jersey shore where she sees various visions of what her future could be, good and bad, um, depending on the choices she makes. So it'll be out in March. Hopefully, people- That's exciting. That's yeah, so yeah. cool. Sounds wonderful. Yeah, that is amazing. Well, Laura, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. This has just been when Beth was like, Laura wants to come on the show. I'm like, my, my Laura, the Laura I read all the books about. And she's like, yeah, I'm so, so pleased that you came and shared all your wisdom. I really think this book is just chock full of insight and really impactful lessons and wisdom about how you spend your time. We thought it would be appropriate to share a passage from Laura Vanderkam's book, Off the Clock, as we leave you today. I really love the last chapter of this book. The title of the chapter is People Are a Good Use of Time. And she focuses on how being intentional about having relationships, especially friendships, matters and and expands the sense of time that you feel. And here is some advice from her about doing that. There are several ways to make friendships a priority in your life and to make sure the category of relationship goals includes friends alongside the people you've related to and work with. First, go big. Oddly enough, big events can be easier to prioritize than small ones. Even if you're busy, you'll likely go to a good friend's wedding. So if you'd like to see far-flung friends, become the instigator of a similarly grand occasion. Give people the date for a long weekend get-together a year in advance. Book somewhere fabulous. Invite their significant others and children. This keeps them from feeling guilty for leaving everyone, and when people's families become friends, it tightens ties with a second layer of bonding. As everyone is reveling in the first weekend, enjoying off-the-clock time together over wine while the kids are in bed, book the date for a second get together. Eventually, your annual weekend will take on a life of its own. Another option, make standing dates for small get-togethers with local friends. One-off events can be fun, but they may take more work to plan than seems worthwhile for a single evening. People are busy, and the more people you try to get together, the bigger the logistical challenge. Recurring events, however, feature none of those woes. If you know your book club gets together on the first Thursday night of the month, no one needs to think about it. Your friends know to hold the date open unless an emergency comes up. Their families and colleagues know to plan for this time. A bonus of any regular get-together, you'll start looking forward to those first Thursday nights. You'll know that even if you haven't done much with friends lately, you'll see your friends the next Thursday, which reminds you that you are the kind of person who has friends. And I thought that was lovely and appreciate all of Laura's advice and her spending time with us today. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Nuance Life. Until we talk to you next week, keep it nuanced, y'all. Nuance Life is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. The Nuance Life is listener supported. For $5 a month, you'll receive an extra episode of The Nuance Life at patreon.com slash The Nuance Life. You can connect with us on our website, thenuancelife.com, and follow us on Instagram.